a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm so glad you could join us today. I'm happy to welcome back my friend, my compadre, my my fellow wrong thinker, Gary Welch. Gary, great to catch up with you. It's been a month. Brian, it's been a very, very long time. I think I've had I, I've had um, kind of the Brian Hyde withdrawals <laughs> type of scenario. I, there was some DTs going on there a little bit, a little bit of shaking. Well, I was I was going to I was going to issue a uh, loyalty test just to see if anything had changed, but no. I actually <laughs> I, I know you you are as solid as the day is long, but uh, but it's good to catch up and there is a lot to discuss today. And and since the last time we talked, I have uh, relocated to Idaho, which uh, Ammon Bundy has officially declared that uh, he is going to throw his uh, name in the hat and run for governor. Wanted to get your uh, initial reaction to hearing that. So we both know Ammon. I think you know him a lot better than I do. And he's always been a very good crusader for standing up for rights of the people. I would call him a a constitutionalist, um, very much a constitutionalist. And he and he's just been that individual that is is solid in his beliefs. You don't have any doubts about where he stands and what he's doing. And so on one hand, I love to see that he's running. I think Idaho is a good place for him, but I still think he's he's doing it wrong. And I don't give him much of a chance of success, even with all the notoriety that he has and the name recognition. And, and even in the right spot of being in Idaho, I think the obstacles ahead of him are really, really great. But I don't even know if he's trying to win. I think he might be just using it as a platform to talk about just at least within Idaho of what they can do up there to protect their constitutional rights, because just across all the country in all 50 states, we saw a massive abuse of our civil rights and of our constitutional rights. And that I, I think he's just wanting to use it as a platform to tell everybody this really shouldn't be happening. And our governor allowed it to happen. I would have to agree that he his chances of winning are are pretty they're they're pretty slim, but having said that, um, you should see the fear that that is gripping the political establishment here in Idaho. The the especially the Republicans, the Republican Party, they are freaking out because they understand he doesn't have to win to move the discussion in in the direction he desires, and that direction is he's he's standing up and stumping for. Less government, you know, more accountability on the part of those who are in authority, but most importantly, people claiming, using, and defending their freedoms and their rights. And and his, his unofficial, maybe this is his official uh, plan or his official uh, campaign slogan, is uh, keep Idaho, Idaho. In other words, don't let it turn into the, the kind of uh, progressive hell that, say, Oregon has turned into or that that the more populous parts of Washington have turned into or that California has has turned into, particularly Southern California. And with a lot of people moving here, um, 
it's yeah, you know, I can, I think that's a message that probably will will gain more traction than not. But of course, uh, you know, he's got a pretty hostile press to face too. And you know, when when the story starts out with anti-government activist Ammon Bundy, right? It's like, well, yeah. gee, I wonder if there's any agenda at play here. And he and he has everything against him. I mean, even though his own party, which he's running with, which kind of surprised me. I thought if if he was going to do that to go third party because the Republicans will just stage some kind of uh, fiasco convention to make sure that he never gets the nomination and they'll make sure that he doesn't get the donations and things that he needs. So that was kind of surprising that he decided to run as such, but he has everything against him. Like you said, he's got the media against him. He's got the political uh, insiders against him. It's going to be a very tough battle, but they should be scared of him because this is a guy that, you know, he's willing to put everything on the line for what he stands for. He's not afraid to go to jail. He is not afraid to even be shot at in defense of his rights. So somebody like that is always dangerous in a go along to get along and follow the line type of political world that we live in. And that's that's where you're seeing the fear most clearly. Is, is the the establishment Republicans keep saying, he's not one of us. He's not like us. And Ammon is like, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the whole point. If they were saying, oh, he is one of us, he would be far more concerned. No, 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 I'm not. Um, so it, people will find out they have an alternative. Whether they choose that, I would not put my money on the voting public being um, in tune enough or principled enough to recognize that this is actually, you know, for whatever negative press he's receiving, this is actually a very down-to-earth, solid individual who has skin in the game and has had for years. It's easier to listen to the comforting lies that politicians will tell them than to listen to some of the harder truths, which nonetheless are truths, that Ammon will ask them to consider. And it's, it's good to know. I mean, there's very few states left that I would classify as true conservative states. I mean, you know, I'm I'm down in Utah and in, in there everybody would say, well, that's a red state. That's a Republican state. That's a conservative state. And I would tell you that that is not the case at all. I think the state has changed and it's it's absolutely would not be classified as any of those. No, purple and would be. Yeah, you won't see it. It's right. It, there's, Republicans, there's a right. Because, well, it's, it's the Republicans are getting elected. So that skews it. And they think like these Republicans that are getting elected are conservatives and all those things that are traditional Republican stanchions. But they're not. They're not at all. These Republicans that are getting elected, I would classify them absolutely as, as Democrats and progressives. It's, you know, our governor right now, Spencer, Spencer Cox. Cox. Yeah. Yep. He led the shutdown in, in Utah. And that's a one place that should not have done that. Utah should have been the state that stood up and said, no, that's just going way too far. And yet the man who led that and really pushed that agenda is now our governor. That's a, to me, the biggest indicator that this is not the kind of state that people think it is. So places like Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, these are these last bastions of conservatism and, and liberty and constitutionalism that really it's like, man, we've got to hold on to these places or otherwise, you know, we've lost it all. I think the, the, the thing that strikes me the most about Ammon's run for governor is this is going to be an opportunity for people to, to see for themselves how 
um, self-interested the system has become. In other words, in protecting its turf, protecting its interests, as opposed to protecting the rights of the citizens, which ostensibly was not the whole reason why, you know, limited government was called into existence in the first place to guarantee and protect our God-given rights. So I don't know. Ammon doesn't have to win to to make a difference, but uh, my prediction, and I feel 100% confident in saying this, is he will suffer an immense amount of abuse at the hands of those people who are trying to protect the system, the the political operatives, the opportunists, the power seekers, they're going to want to kick him around hard and try to scare the people in the process. I wouldn't be surprised if something wasn't ginned up, you know, well, you know, he was arrested for trespassing at the legislature, which, you know, is true. He was twice, you know, and sometimes, in fact, I think five times in the last six months. But I don't know how many people are willing to follow up and say, okay, but why was he arrested? What was he really doing? You know, some people think it's just a self-serving act that he's putting on. He just wants the press time. Well, there's easier way to get press than, you know, finding yourself being wheeled away in handcuffs. But there's, there's something, there's a higher purpose there. And his higher purpose is when government is acting without the consent of the governed, we have to stand up and we have to stand up united. Um, one of the things that he has done with his time since, um, you know, the trial of four years ago down in Vegas is he has built the uh, People's Rights Organization. Are, are you familiar with this? Have you looked into into the people's rights uh, movement much, Gary? Yes, I have, simply because of him. I, so that's, you know, a thing of having that name recognition is he does something and lots of people get told about it and hear about it. I'm a, not a big follower of it, but um, I have heard of it, and I like what he's doing. I like what he's trying to achieve with it. Strictly from the standpoint of um, helping people get organized and, and, you know, come together and realize, look, there are more of us than we thought. I think it may be one of the most brilliant organizations I've seen within recent memory. Now, interestingly enough, because he has said, yeah, I'm going to run for governor, he now has to step back from that organization because there has to be a pretty strict separation between such organizations and political candidates. So that's, uh, you know, there's a small price he pays, but I think the organization wasn't ever intended to be about him in the first place. We've got to take a quick break. Gary Welch is my guest. We have a lot more to discuss. Important stuff that you've probably been wondering about for the last month. But we'll cover it just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Gary Welch. Yeah, Gary and I used to get together every Tuesday and we'd talk about important stuff. I'm glad to see that this tradition has survived my my move to uh, to the hinterlands. And Gary, one of the topics you suggested was uh, the, the U.S. Postal Service. And you asked the question, is it time for the USPS to go? Uh, give me some of your thoughts on why it may have outlived its usefulness. So this thing has always been for probably 40 years now, just this big government bureaucratic behemoth that's no longer serving the purpose that it was originally intended to. Just like with everything else, where when it was first started, it was useful and needed. 
But as time goes on and as technology has improved and as other things came along, it's outserved its usefulness, but it has this, this, this placement in society and within history as being, you know, a stanchion of our government and that this thing is, is who we are and what we are and we need to keep it. And it's all based on nostalgia, not on actual, does it serve a useful purpose? So one of the things that they are dealing with is the cost of doing business, which is really funny because it was. And that would provide low cost services on because it's, you know, the quote unquote myth, the, the, or I should say the myth of this quote unquote the government is the least costly way of doing things. This is a part of that. And I, and I, I always say just the opposite. Government is the most expensive <laughs> way to do anything. It is not the least expensive. It is the most expensive way of doing anything. So it's, you know, it's, it's got a lot of bureaucracy. It has got some really, really strong unions. Uh, I used to work with the, the distribution centers in the post office. And, and we were working with them and they were telling me things like if the temperature goes over a certain temperature by two degrees, they shut it down and it's shut down for the whole day. Why? Because that's what's in the union rules. Wow. You know, and it's just like, that's stupid. Yeah, but they negotiated it and the government let them negotiate it. So that's part of, of what happens there. You know, so now they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on on equipment, you know, HVAC equipment to make sure that that doesn't happen. And of course, then that adds to your the, the personnel add to your costs and all other things. So this thing has been bleeding really bad. And so when Trump got in, he appointed a postmaster general who said, look, I'm going to try to save this thing, which I thought was wrong. That would have been your opportune time at that point with the Republican Congress and Trump as president, that would have been your time to say, let's just shut this stupid thing down. But they decided to try to save it. So he wants to cut back. Well, he's getting all of this resistance from U.S. attorneys all over the country saying, well, if you do that, you're going to mess up our voting because we vote by mail is such a big deal now. And now all of us are using it. If you go from a, from a delivery within three days to delivery in five days, which is what he's proposing, you're going to mess it all up and you're going to just totally destroy our vote by mail system. And I'm like, I'm good with that. I'm, I wouldn't be opposed to that at all, but they just are not looking at this from a perspective. So they want to force him to keep the three day pattern and, and force Congress then to give more money and more subsidies to the post office so that they can keep that three day commitment. And I'm like, why are we even doing this? I mean, you know, everybody's sitting there arguing about, well, whether or not they should do that and cut the costs. And this is not right because it's, it's overrunning, you know, they're, they're overrunning their budget and things like that. And, and I'm saying the discussion shouldn't even be whether it should be a three-day delivery or a five-day delivery. It should be, are you even relevant anymore? Are you even doing the job? Amazon can get me something from anywhere within two days. I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time with Amazon using the, their prime and just getting stuff delivered to me, small things, big things, lots of things. I had a TV delivered and I had a, a little $5 item delivered. And guess what? It takes them about two to three days yep. every time. And I'm, 
And that's just Amazon. You know, what if you go to something like UPS or FedEx or these guys who do it professionally and, and are really good at it? I just think like, well, we could get three day delivery and we could probably cost a lot less if we just simply say it's time for this thing to go. And let's just let's just give it a decent burial. Let it let it let's put it on hospice and, and let it just die a natural death. Boy, that is a tough order, though. When, especially when you're dealing with something that's government related, right? People want to hang on to it, even just for the sense of, well, now what about all the people that'll put out of work? Not thinking, well, couldn't they find work in the private sector? I almost said the productive sector, but hey, you know, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Well, and and they, what they're saying though, and here's the here's the funny part about this: considering what happened in the 2020 election. They're saying that the post office is the only way that we could have secure voting through mail, that that you need that government institution to ensure the security of a a fair and and um, unfraudulent voting system. And I'm just laughing at that because you hear all the stories about what happened at these postal distribution centers and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Um, I, the government's like the last guy I trust to have a, a fair and honest voting system. Interesting. Now, we've got a couple minutes here before the break, but uh, Gary, I know there have been audits going on in Arizona as well as other states. And it sounds like in Arizona, there have been I mean, I've got a, I have a screenshot downloaded of uh, some of the different inconsistencies that have been found in the various states. And it really does appear like, you know, at the very least, it deserves a closer look. I'm not saying it's clear that Trump really won, but I'm saying there's enough questions that arise from looking at those inconsistencies. I am not convinced that this was the most honest and transparent election of our lifetimes. How about you? Even going so if I if I step away from the conspiracy theorist type of thing, which I haven't, uh, you know me, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I, I just really kind of I shoo shoo those things all the time and I'm very skeptical of them. But I do believe that there was wholesale fraud in this last election. But I believe that there was wholesale fraud in the 2016 election, too. I just think that this thing has been going on for a long time. Trump just gave it the the spotlight to put a light on it. But even without that, let's say you don't say fair, everybody's trying to do the right thing. There are a lot of inefficiencies. There are a lot of inconsistencies. There is a lot of bureaucracy that allows for things to happen that should not happen. The post office is one of those institutions where it's very bureaucratic, very institutionalized, very inconsistent, and very, very inefficient that we should not be saying, well, this is the, the institution we should trust with our votes. Right. I'm like, no, I don't think so. No, I, I'm with you there. I I don't know. I've seen some pretty strong language from, you know, state attorneys general to uh, the Department yeah. of Justice. And there seems to be a really concerted effort right now to try to convince people, don't look so closely. Stop looking over there. Stop looking where I'm pointing. You know, it's like, um, I don't know. There's smoke. Could possibly be some fire, but uh, maybe that's a topic for for a different time. In the meantime, I could probably get by if the post office was look. Even if the post office went to three days, but better still, if if something private was to step in and replace it, I think I'd be okay. Trips to the mailbox just aren't what they used to be. Do you experience that too? 
Correct. Um, and, and, and that's the big deal is just the, the, the downsizing of Americans using paper and, and packages and things like that. And the big cry has been the rural areas. You know, how do you get mail out to the rural areas? But again, I think private institutions do it just as well. Yep. I, I, that's something I'm willing to put to the test because it seems like the private sector comes up with some pretty cool ways of solving problems and seems to do so with a lot less political entanglement than its government counterparts. We'll take a quick break. We've got more important stuff to discuss with Gary Welch. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome back to the show. I am talking with Gary Welch, my fellow wrong thinker, and my friend who I like to sit down and just, well, talk about the the issues of the day. Gary, something you brought up in uh, in our discussion of what, what we might talk about today, patriotism versus nationalism. That is a topic I love to explore. Can I ask, what uh, what prompted that to cross your mind? So there's been um, a rash of articles that have been coming out, and I don't know what is prompting this. You know, when you see things, this is the thing about wrong thinkers. When we see patterns in things, we just don't accept it and say, oh, okay, that's just coincidence or that's that's happening. We're always the type to look and go, what are they doing? This is this is something's going on here. This is purposeful. And what I've been seeing is a lot of 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 articles and things coming out about wars, about the different wars that America has participated in and these comparisons between World War II and Afghanistan, Vietnam. Vietnam's been really big here lately for some reason. I don't know if it's because it's coming up on some anniversary or something, but a lot of these, you know, the Iran, Iraq wars and things like that. And what I see is then the dialogue going back and forth because we live in a comment-based world where every article has a comment section and everybody goes back and forth on that. And then there was a lot of discussion about that, about what is America doing, uh, the reason for the wars, and if you were against them, you were against America and things like that. And then that started me thinking about the whole thing of patriotism and nationalism nationalism i and i see that's a lot i see that a lot in our country a lot of nationalism you know america love it or leave it type of mentality oh, yeah. we are always right um we cannot you know we can't be second place to china kind of mentality you know thinking and i'm i've always said i don't think that's good i i, I really don't think that's good and if you are a nationalist I don't think you're a patriot. And yet they would call themselves patriot. They would say, I'm very patriotic. I'm a patriot to my country. And I would almost counter to say, no, you're not. You're a nationalist. Yeah, I've had this discussion actually with with a number of listeners over the years. And sometimes it turns pretty ugly. And it's it's not so much because, you know, there's just so much finger pointing going on. But um, people confuse nationalism and patriotism in ways that they might not expect. And, and, you know, for instance, do you remember the first Gulf War? Do you remember yeah. the reaction yeah. when, when Operation Desert Storm kicked in after Operation Desert Shield? 
And I'll admit, Gary, I was one of those people who was sitting there cheering as I'm watching, you know, the bombs fall, you know, on CNN. And I'm watching, you know, the night vision and all the anti-aircraft fire going into the air. I was like, finally, we're doing something to those dang Iraqis. And man, I was just, you know, I was right there with the crowd chanting and cheering. And the reason I was chanting and cheering wasn't so much because I love my country. And if it's in harm's way, it's doing the right thing. I was ticked off that I was paying a buck fifty a gallon for gas. I thought that was unconscionable. And so if Saddam Hussein is, you know, dinking around here and making gas cost more, then it's our duty to go in there and just kick the crap out of him and his country. And I and I I'm ashamed at how naive I was, you know, to, to just mindlessly cheer with the crowd. And and it took some time, but I came to the point where I started to realize nationalism has a pretty ugly aftertaste that most people don't uh, perceive at the time that they're chugging it and, you know, chanting in in unison with people. Um, I think George Orwell actually wrote uh, Notes on Nationalism. I don't know if you're familiar with that essay. Have you heard of that before? Yes, yes. I think that the the identifying feature of nationalism, this is where you separate the patriots from the nationalists, is if you are okay— if you can excuse your country doing things that you would consider an atrocity if it were being done to you, but you can do it because, well, they're not us. Their skin is different or they speak a different language or they live across that imaginary line on the map. Um, that's a pretty good indication. You're probably embracing some some degree of nationalism as opposed to patriotism, which is I love my country for the same reason I love my family, because it's mine. Not because it's perfect, not because it's the strongest or the best or the richest, but because it's mine and I sincerely want to see it succeed. Do you see the difference there? I've brought this up in political talks regarding candidates and and political parties in that we take a team approach. You know, it's I root for the Cubs even when they're losing. I root for the Cubs when even when they're terrible. You know, I'm a Red Sox fan, and I don't care that it took them over 100 years to win the World Series. I was a diehard fan all the time, even when they picked lousy players, even when they had a lousy manager that wasn't running the team right. It's that that fan mentality that says you got to support them right or wrong, win or lose, no matter what. And that's very dangerous in politics, and it's very dangerous when you're talking about your country. To me, to be a patriot, you are very critical of your government, especially in American patriotism. American patriotism is based upon that that innate dis, dis, um, distrust of government and what it's doing. And yet we see in this that you're being unpatriotic if you are criticizing the government, if you're criticizing America for what it does, if you criticize our international things that we are doing. And yet I'm I'm looking at this and it's, it's just like what you said. If this was happening to us or if another country was doing these kinds of things, we would be very critical. And we have been. We've been very critical of China and their expansionism. We've been very critical of Russia and what they did. And yet when we do the same things, oh, all of a sudden it's all justified because it's us and we have to support and defend our country no matter what. I just really think that part of being a patriot is standing up and saying, you know what? These, this government and these individuals are not standing up to the ideals and, and the morals that make America what it is. And that to me is a patriot. Why is it such a hard sell? To, to persuade people to lean more towards patriotism than it is towards nationalism. Because I don't see any problem with getting people to wave the flag. 
Right. So this is like a human behavior thing. And I, it's a marketing thing where they have used that to subjugate the people. And this is nothing new. The Nazis and the communists have been doing this for a very, very long time. And that is to create the us situation that the government is us and we are the government and they are the same as us. So if you criticize the government, you criticize us. If the government does something that you say is wrong, then you're saying I'm wrong. You identify with that institution. Again, it's the fan base where you identify with that institution that this is me. I am it. And so when you criticize that, you're criticizing me. You're criticizing, you know, you're, when you criticize my country, you're criticizing me because I am my country. And, and that, if we really think about it in American philosophy and political, um, how we do things politically, that is absolutely not the case. We are not, we are not our government. We, we don't look at it that our government is us and that they are, everything they do is right. It's, it's built upon that individualism that you are your own self-sovereign person to do whatever you want. Why would we do this? And yet we've been incorporated. I mean, it really has. They've taken us in and said, yeah, if you, if you criticize us, you're criticizing yourself. I think about that iconic photograph of a guy by the name of August Landmesser. And, and we've all seen this yeah. photograph, the guy standing in yeah. a crowd of, of people all doing the Nazi salute. He's the one guy standing there with his arms folded who does not have his right arm outstretched. And, you know, you'll see that meme from time to time, be this guy. Well, keep in mind, being that guy meant uh, he was sent off to the Eastern Front. Uh, he, he died in the war. Um, but in, in my opinion, sometimes that's what patriotism looks like. Sometimes it's doing the exact opposite of what everybody else is doing. And that's a tough thing to do. Not something anybody, you know, in their right mind is going to, you know, want to do because there's always going to be some pain attached to it. But it brings about change when you do. Change it only does. can come from at least pointing out the deficiencies and, and the wrongs that are being done. And if we want to make a better country, again, a patriot is always working on creating a better country. We have to right the wrongs. We have to point out the, the problems. We have to look at the things where they're not doing things right and call them to account for it. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and as you and I discovered last year, and we were talking about this a lot at this time last year, courage is contagious. I mean, there are some people I like to wait until everybody's doing something. Okay. It's safe. It's safe. All right. I too am against slavery. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when they know there's, there's no possible backlash, but um, it just takes one person, one person standing up and, and saying, no, this isn't right, or I can't get on board with it. And others will start to, to see that, uh, you know, their conscience can still play into the, the equation as well. we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a couple other great topics to touch on. Again, my guest is Gary Welch, and we will be back to uh, delve a little deeper into wrong think, just the other side of these messages. Is the Brian Hyde Show?
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Gary Welsh is my guest, and uh, I'm ready to delve into a topic that I think could make some people uncomfortable. Gary, you know what's coming. Did it make you uncomfortable? <laughs> the, the suggestion <laughs> that there ain't no such thing as free love? Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, you know, just, just the whole concept of free love and what that really is. I was going to say, well, I'm not sure if this is going to be a family-friendly show. <laughs> well, I, I really, I enjoy Jeff Minnick. I read his articles on uh, Intellectual Takeout all the time. And, and Jeff is one of those great commentators on uh, culture and what's happening culturally. But I really thought his take on there is no such thing as free love, which this is kind of his twist on Robert Heinlein's there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, which has been very common and popular, uh, particularly within libertarian circles. But he says when, when we talk about free love, that brings to mind you know, the, the term embraced by the 60s, which his online dictionary defines as the idea or practice of having sexual relations according to choice without being restricted by marriage or long-term relationships. But he says that's not the meaning he has in mind. When he says there ain't no such thing as free love, he says that refers to real love, particularly the love between a man and a woman and the costs of that love. And he says most of us have probably gone to weddings where the bride requested this reading from 1 Corinthians, the scripture that says love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To which Jeff Minnick says, okay, that's a beautiful sentiment. But if we ponder the meaning of this passage, we find that love comes loaded with obligations, patience, kindness, endurance, respect, and duty. In other words, real love is many things, but it is never free. Um, let me get your reaction to this and, and to, to his, uh, his take on what we mean by love costs something. So when I was reading the article, he made a lot of reference, scriptural, biblical references as part of what he was talking about. And that's because the institution of marriage and the institution of a committed relationship is really based upon that Judeo-Christian values. And so he was referring to that a lot. And there's some good, strong reasons for that. And there's some good practical social reasons for that. But I was saying, well, there's the problem. That's where the issues are coming, because we're basing this on those Judeo-Christian values. And we have these government and media and academics that are absolutely going out trying to destroy the institution of religion. And I've, and I've brought this up before. If you want to be the only institution existing, i.e. government is the only thing to refer to, it is the law, it is the, the, the power, and it's going to make all decisions for you, you have to destroy the other competing institutions. And if, if, if God is one of those things that, well, God's a higher power than you, you got to get rid of him. You got to get him out of there. So they have made a very concerted effort to destroy the, this, the institution of religion. And since Judeo-Christianity is the prominent religion in America, that's where they focused on. And they've done a great job. We're down to 18% now. It's, it's, it's really on its last legs. They have been very effective in doing that. I so they've destroyed all these institutions that go with it. I remember 25 years ago when, uh, when you know, homosexual activists 
were, were their, their battle cry wasn't so much, we want, you know, same-sex marriage. It was, we just want to be left alone. And, and you know, over time, suddenly being left alone became, no, we want the same benefits as marriage. Now we want, you know, complete parity. Now we want this to be taught in the schools. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not trying to lay this at the feet of, you know, therefore everybody who is, is homosexual is bad. That's not the case. But the activist wings have taken this so far to where now, even in rural areas, I guess in, in the Twin Falls, Idaho area where I just relocated, there was someone who seriously floated the idea of, hey, we should have Drag Queen Story Hour at our library. And, and Gary, I'm, pl- I'm proud to tell you, the local populace here said, mm, no, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's just not something that we would be interested in being a part of. We're, we're not ready to jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, um, I tend to think, you know, uh, we, we make social adjustments that society grows, society uh, changes as time goes on. And and but I've always felt that that needs to be done naturally and it needs to be done by consensus, not so much of a government push and things like that. And where it gets to the the free love, I mean, they even coined it um, they are not talking about free love. They're talking about free lust. And there is a, you just pointed out the major difference between the two. One is a very selfish, self-centered type of mentality. The, the, the results and the desires of that is selfish. It's just for you to get pleased and have something, you know, where you feel good about it. Whereas love itself you never look inwardly. It's always outward. Love is a, is an outward expression of kindness, goodness, taking care of others and things like that. Um, and, and it's why I always like the word charity, because in, in the old King James version of that, it's, it's referred to as charity. And I think there's the big that difference of se- separating that emotional. Oh, I love her. She is so awesome. So cute. I just got to have her that love versus the. I'm willing to sacrifice. I am willing to give up. I am willing to put my life in yours. I am willing to make long-term commitments to you. That's a very different kind of love. I I saw a quote today from uh, Thomas uh, Sowell, and I got to share this with you. He said, it has long been my belief that the sight of a good-looking woman lowers a man's IQ by at least 20 points. A man who doesn't (laughs) happen to have 20 points to spare can be in big trouble. (laughs) Yep. That sounds about right. So, you know, I remember, you know, again, going back almost 25 years ago when when some of the first push for same sex marriage or the first ideas, trial balloons started to be floated. And the idea was it's not fair to same sex couples that they don't have all the same perks and benefits that, uh, you know, traditional marriage offers heterosexual couples. And Joseph Sobren at that time said, hey. I don't know who got the idea that, uh, you know, somehow the heteros got together and created marriage as an institution to punish those who weren't, you know, it, 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 like it's some big club and some big party that, that only we can be a part of. Because he says, when I look at it, marriage has an awful lot of obligations and duties that are attached to whatever other pleasures may also be a part of it. And I thought that was a particularly wise way of looking at it. In Jeff Minnick's article, that's something he talks about, too, that uh, we're talking about Mutual commitment, we're talking about uh, serious self-sacrifice and self-control because it is the right thing to do, you know, for the sake of the marriage, not because, uh, you know, 
You're, you're going to have a, a more pleasant or pleasure-filled life as a result of doing these things. Although there is some peace of mind that comes with that, too. What do you think about the dwindling numbers of people who are, are choosing to become married? So in, in this, this is what I'm getting at. In destroying the institution of religion in your quest to do so, you are destroying some very fundamental things about society and how to build the perfect society. This is one of the issues that I talk a lot about is building the perfect society. We know we will never achieve perfection in our society, but it's something that we should always strive for. We should always be striving for that perfect society. And those institutions, some of those things that you have to create for a perfect society, a better society, is strong family units. I have not seen any society where they've destroyed family units that has turned out well. And we are seeing within our own society breakdowns and things that are occurring because there is no family cohesiveness. You have brothers all over the place, sisters all over the place, moms and dads all over the place. And that cohesion that we need as humans is missing. And it's because there is, you know, in our efforts to just say, well, I'll sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want mentality. How can you build a a family on that? Now take all the religion out of it. You want, if you want throw all the religion out, go ahead. You're I'm fine with that. Go do it. But then just look at the repercussions of not having that, that kind of, of a, of a unit in a society. I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it one more time for those who may be interested. J.D. Unwin, he was a British, British anthropologist, wrote a study called Sex and Civilization, published back in 1935. He found that civilizations that made seeking pleasure their highest priority inevitably declined. Civilizations that practiced fidelity, control, limited sexual relationships to marriage actually were the ones that ascended and prospered and went the furthest. So, And he was not doing this from a religious point of view. Gary, great conversation. Great to catch up with you again, my friend. Let's do this again next week, shall we? Let's put it back on the calendar. This is The Brian Hyde Show.